you have someone like that in your life, maybe someone in your family or at work or at school or maybe a friend or a former friend. She sings about such people, you live your life like a tornado, destruction follows everywhere you go, and you have no plans to stop or slow. And I tried to remove myself from your path, but I keep on waking up in the aftermath. And it hurts when you hit at the hearts of the ones I love, when everything you touch is rubble and dust, and it gets so hard to know how to trust. And every time I find healing, you're making a new mess. And I could move and never send you a forwarding address where I could learn the real meaning of forgiveness. Well, this isn't a sermon about forgiving, but it is about those kind of people who cause us so much hurt and pain. Only in today's passage, in Ezekiel 36, God is the one being hurt by those kind of people. God is the one seeing everything that God loves turning to rubble and dust. And guess who it is who's breaking God's heart again and again? It's God's own people. It's God's own people. So how does God respond? Well, that's what today's passage is about. In today's text, a prophet named Ezekiel speaks into a time in, in God's story, which is the absolute low point in God's relationship with his people. At this point in history, God's people are in exile. They've been torn away from their homes, from their sources of income, from everything familiar to them, and they've been made to live in a, a, oppressive circumstances in a foreign land called Babylon. At the point of today's passage, the Israelites have been already suffering in this exile for several decades. Over a period of 20 years, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the powerful king of the Babylonian Empire, had attacked Jerusalem not once but twice, each time forcefully taking away much of the city's wealth and inhabitants. But all of this time, God's people kept optimistically telling themselves that these were just temporary setbacks, that, um, that things were going to start looking up. Both God's people still in Jerusalem and those already taken to Babylon, to exile, held out hope that, that soon God would punish Babylon and bring God's people back home to Jerusalem. After all, they were God's people. And Jerusalem was God's city. God's temple was there, containing God's own presence. How could God let anything really bad happen to his own beloved people? Hadn't God made a covenant with his people? Hadn't God made a commitment, a promise to bless them and to protect them? This is the way the people were thinking and talking together. But then 586 BC happened and their optimism was utterly dashed after these 20 years of trouble and uncertainty and exile. Because at this point, the catastrophic news came to the exiles in Babylon that Jerusalem had fallen finally and completely. For all intents and purposes, the city was barely there anymore. And God's own temple had been completely destroyed. God had failed his people, it seemed. And this news was absolutely devastating for those in exile. God's people were paralyzed in, in shock and disbelief because now there was no one left to rescue them. There, there was no home to go home to. 
there would be no happy ending. God's people would be stuck forever, it seemed, in their suffering and in their exile. And where was God? God had failed them. Didn't God care? Couldn't God have done something? Was God even there? Well, it's into this situation that the prophet Ezekiel speaks. To bring a word from God. To offer a different perspective on this situation. To offer God's perspective. That's what prophets do. They, they challenge what we've come to believe. They, they challenge how we've come to see our circumstances and, and how we've come to view God in light of our circumstances. And get this, do you know who the prophets challenge the most? They challenge religious people. In Ezekiel's day, the false theologies, the false views of God, which were being taught and repeated among God's people, that God would be faithful, that God would protect his people in his temple, God wouldn't let anything happen. These views were being taught and repeated by priests and by Bible teachers and by so-called prophets to their congregations. They were not being spread by atheists or godly people. No, it, it's the religious people, the people who think and talk most about God, who tend to inadvertently make up some false views about God, which then get mixed in with the true ones. And so how are we as God's people to sift this out? How are we to know if our views about God, our perspectives on religious matters are accurate or not? How were the Jews of, of Ezekiel's day, suffering in exile, supposed to know if God was there and on their side and going to rescue them, or if God was going to let Jerusalem fall? How are we today supposed to know if God is more with the Democrats or more with the Republicans, or if God still views the United States as a city shining on a hill, as a, a force of good in this world, or whether God views us as a wayward, fallen, immoral nation headed for God's judgment. How are we supposed to know? Lots of religious people have their opinions. They write their books. They fill their, their radio airtime. But what does God really think? Well, this is where prophets come in. Men and women who have a word that they have heard from God, a word of truth which cuts through all the popular noise about God which is broadcast out there every day. In the case of Ezekiel, this was first a word of bad news, a word of judgment and destruction. And then, as we'll see in today's passage, it was also a word of good news, a word of hope and encouragement. The word of judgment takes up a big part of the book of Ezekiel. And what God told Ezekiel to tell God's people was this. I am not going to rescue Jerusalem. I'm not going to be with you anymore or to protect you from Babylon. No, in fact, get your minds around this. I am sending Babylon I sent the enemy, the evil enemy, the oppressive enemy, the vile enemy. I sent them. Why? To punish and to destroy you. Never mind that I made a covenant with you. Never mind that you're my own people and that my temple, my presence is with you. Never mind all that. That means nothing now. Why? Because you have totally wrecked our covenant, yours and mine. You have abandoned it. 
You have smeared filth all over it. You have cheated on me, your covenant partner. You've dragged my heart through the mud. And how dare you say that that unfaithfulness, that rebellion doesn't matter, that, that what you've done isn't really so bad and I should love you enemy, or anyway. <laughs> no way. Don't you get what a covenant relationship is? It's a loving, faithful, vulnerable commitment between two people. And yes, if, if you keep the covenant, there are blessings and there's love and there's goodwill from me. But if you break the covenant, you shatter a heart, you cause pain and trouble, and there are consequences and there are penalties to face. And so, like the tornado in the song, Ezekiel says to God's people, the truth is that you have wrecked and trampled God's heart and everything dear to God, and that's why you were in exile, and that's why Babylon has destroyed Jerusalem. God had them do it. A hard word didn't make Ezekiel a, positive, or a popular person. Here's how he says it in verse 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, says Ezekiel. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. And then verse 18. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. That's the bad news. It's not what God's people wanted to believe or wanted to hear, and it's still not what we want to hear today. After all, ever since the 1970s, we've been taught, as the famous book title put it, I'm okay and you're okay. <laughs> we, we've been told that, that we shouldn't get down on ourselves. Rather, we need to, to build ourselves up, to think positively about ourselves. The power of positive thinking, right? A, a participation trophy for every kid who plays. We need to, to have a healthy self-esteem, we've been told. And, and there's some truth to this. But, but the truth, that truth, has gotten all mixed up with, with our own wishful thinking. And so pretty soon we had psychologists telling us that all religion was bad for us. Because it heaped up on us repressive messages, like that we're sinful and guilty. And, and so we're told that, that we need to get healthy, we need to... Uh, or rather, to get healthy, we need to recognize that there's no God who holds us to a standard, or, or, or there's only a God um, who, who uh, approves of us uh, no matter what, no matter how we live. And so we're free to chart our own course, and whatever we choose should be affirmed and celebrated. Well, into this kind of thinking, the prophets come. And they say, that's a nice idea, but here's what God says. God says, I exist, and that I have invited you into a relationship, but you're living like, you're living your life like, like a tornado. You're making a mess of your relationship with me. You've broken your relationship with God. It's all in ruins, and God doesn't look, overlook that or pretend that it isn't happening. That's what prophets do. They, they help us see reality from God's perspective instead of just from our own. And, and what Ezekiel does next is he challenges God's people to see the exile, the circumstances that they're in, from God's perspective. Because sure, God's judgment on his people was a huge problem for them. 
a problem that they brought on themselves. But, Ezekiel says, you've got to realize it's also a big problem for God. Because now that God's people are in exile, what are the other nations thinking about this? All the bystanders looking on. What are the Babylonians thinking? What are the Assyrians and the Egyptians thinking? As they see God's people defeated and kicked out of their land and now living in shame and squalor. Well, the nations are thinking, boy, the Israelites, God, that God didn't do a very good job of taking care of them. (laughs) That's what Ezekiel picks up on in verse 20 when he says, And wherever God's people went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. You see God's problem? God's people are now losers. They're, they're abandoned. They're, they're forsaken. And because of this, the Lord, their God, is getting a bad rap. The, the nations who don't know any better are concluding that the Israelites' God is weak and is not dependable, is not able to protect his people, is not able to save his people. And this is a problem for God's reputation. It's a big problem. Now, we might wonder, so what? I mean, so what about God's reputation? So what if people get the wrong idea about God? I mean, aren't there bigger problems in the world? Is God some kind of egotist that he cares so much about his reputation? Well, let me ask you, do you care about what people say about you? If there was gossip going around about you, that you can't be trusted, that you're actually a liar, that that you cheated on someone you were supposed to love, or that you're incompetent, and that the only reason you have what you have, the only reason you've achieved what you achieved is because you cheated to get it. Would you be happy about that? No. No. That wouldn't be a good thing, would it? Don't we have a right to an accurate reputation, an honest portrayal of who we are? And all the more so if you're a leader, if if you have responsibilities over others. If you're a supervisor at work, for example, and you're a good supervisor, how can you do your job if everyone is going around saying that you're weak and you're ineffective and, and that you lie and you can't be trusted? How can you do your job if everyone's opinion has been turned against you, right? Well, the same is true of God. If God is real, if God is the true God, if God is responsible for shaping history and running the universe for the good of the world and of humanity, but everyone thinks God is bad and undependable, how well is that going to go? Well, just look around you, right? God's reputation matters. What people think about God has huge consequences. So this is God's problem in the time of Ezekiel as his people are in exile. They have been kicked out of their land and it reflects really badly on God. As Ezekiel puts it, God's name is being profaned among the nations. So what is God going to do about it? Well, this is where the good news comes in, in today's passage. Ezekiel has good news to proclaim to us. And the good news is this. In the future, God is going to save his people back out of exile. 
God is going to restore his covenant with them. God is going to renew his commitment and his relationship with his people. But God is quick to tell his people, it's not because you deserve it. I think that's what Ezekiel is saying in verse 32. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. And also up in verse 22. It is not for your sake, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I think what God is saying here is this. Don't think I'm going to save you because I was wrong to judge you. Don't think I've changed my mind about whether you deserve to go into exile. And don't think I'm saving you because you've shaped up, because you've changed, because you've said you're sorry and started acting better, because you and I both know that you haven't. You haven't changed one bit. You haven't done anything to deserve my forgiveness or my salvation. But guess what? I'm going to save you anyway. Why? Because my name, my reputation is tied to you. Isn't that amazing that, that God's name and reputation is inextricably bound up with his people? Remember why God called his people to be his people in the first place. Think way back to the beginning of God's story. Way back to when God called Abraham and Sarah. God called them to be his own. Why? So that they and their descendants would be a blessing to the nations. So that through God's people, or yeah, God, through God's people, the nations could learn what God is like. As God's people followed God, as they trusted God, as they learned about God's character and they came to reflect that character themselves, the nations would see what God is like. And they would be drawn to God. They would be drawn to God's goodness, drawn into God's salvation. That's what God wanted. That was God's original plan, and it's still, and it's forever God's plan. And even when God's own people totally fail at their part, God's plan doesn't change. It still depends on God's people. And so for the sake of God's name, for the sake of God's reputation, God is going to rescue his own people, even though they've done nothing to deserve it. That's God's undeserved grace. Isn't that great news? <laughs> and it's not only for the people of Ezekiel's day. No, God extends that same grace to us today. God invites you and me back into a relationship with God. God saves us. God chooses to love us, not because we deserve it, but just because God chooses to do it for the sake of God's own reputation. And you know what the best part of that is? That we didn't earn it in the first place. And so we don't have to keep earning it to hold on to it. It's all a gift. It's God's choice to be gracious. It depends on God, not on us. And so now in verse 24 and following, Ezekiel tells how God is going to do this, how God is going to save his people. And here's where it gets even more wonderful. There are three aspects of this salvation that God promises here. And even though we don't live back in the time of exile in Ezekiel's day, the New Testament tells us that all three of these promises are still being fulfilled for us today. Ready? First, verse 24. 
For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your own land. Now this one was literally fulfilled for the Israelites, and it relates to us today figuratively. It's about restoration. Being brought back into God's presence, back into God's blessing, back into God's provision and God's protection. For the Israelites, it meant literally being brought back into God's land, back into the place of God's pure, holy presence. But how could God do this? Because God's people hadn't changed. They hadn't cleaned up their act. They hadn't started acting faithfully again toward God. Think of it this way. How could a filthy, muddy people be brought back into God's nice, clean living room? Answer? Verse 25, the second aspect of the salvation. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all of your idols. God himself was going to cleanse his people. God was going to wash away all of their impurities, all the rebellion, all the unfaithfulness which had caused God to send his people into exile in the first place, God wasn't going to just pretend that they were clean. No, God was actually going to make them clean. God was going to make them worthy to be in relationship with him and to be in his pure presence. Isn't that great? And God still offers to do that for you and for me through Jesus Christ. We were singing about it this morning. Christ whom God sent to take away all of our sins and our guilt, to take it onto himself so that we could be forgiven and purified and cleansed and made spotless so that we can come back close to God again. But that's not even the best part. The best part is the third part, verses 26 and 27. God promises his people, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And then listen to this. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. God is going to give his people new hearts. God knows that the hearts of his people are still like stone. In the Bible, a stone heart is a dead heart. It's a heart that's rock hard. A heart which is dead and unresponsive toward God. The problem is God's people have hearts of stone, and so they can't love God. They can't aspire to represent God before a watching world. They can't joyfully live the way God has instructed them to live. They don't want to trust God. God's people may have been punished. They they may be in exile, but inside they haven't changed as a result of that. They have the same dead hearts which caused God to reject them and rebel against them in the first place. And so God could bring them home and God could clean them up, but inside they're still going to be the same old people, quick to go back to the same old ways. And so what does God do? God says, I am so committed to your salvation I'm so committed to this new, restored relationship between you and me that I'm going to give you even a brand new heart. Thank you, Lord. Right now, it seems, God says, that I'm so far away from you. You're in exile. You're far from my temple. You're far from my presence. But guess what? 
I'm going to come so close to you with my own spirit, my own breath, my own personal presence, that, that I'm going to touch you and breathe life into you in the most core, tender, central part of who you are. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to make you new from the inside out. I'm going to give you a heart which can love me. A heart which wants to please me and to live as I know is best for you to live. I'm going to give you a good heart, a loving heart, a faithful heart. Isn't that great news? Because that's for us too. Boy, God has to do everything for us, doesn't he? Augustine was a a philosopher and a theologian from the 4th century who had a huge impact on how we in the West understand ourselves as individuals. And Augustine understood our need for a new heart. You see, Augustine had had a problem with sexual lust before God gave him a new heart. He had had a huge problem. But when Augustine came to know and follow Christ, he was powerfully changed God took his heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh, a new heart. And one time later, Augustine happened to bump into one of his former lovers on the street. And she was excited to see him, and she tried to pull Augustine off into a fling of several weeks like they'd had many times before. But this time, Augustine said, thank you, but no thanks. And she was surprised. And she wondered if he didn't realize it was her. And so she said sweetly, Augustine, it is I. And he replied, yes, I know, but it is not I. God had given Augustine a new heart. Not only had God brought Augustine back into God's presence, not only had God begun offering Augustine his provision and his protection, and not only had God washed Augustine clean of guilt and sin and impurity, no, God had done even more than that. God had even given Augustine a new heart. Because without a new heart, we don't really change. We may act differently on the outside for a while, but, but it's just a superficial act. I once heard a, a humorous illustration of this, kind of sad, too. A man purchased a white mouse to use as food for his pet snake, a live mouse. And he dropped, it into the, the, he dropped the unsuspecting mouse into the snake's glass cage where the snake was sleeping in a bed of sawdust. And uh, the tiny mouse saw the snake and quickly realized it had a serious problem. <laughs> At any moment, it could be swallowed alive. Obviously, the mouse needed to come up with a brilliant plan really fast. So what did the terrified little creature do? Well, it quickly set to work covering the snake with sawdust chips. And and once the snake was completely buried and out of sight, the mouse apparently thought it had solved its problem. But the real solution came from outside, because the man took pity on the silly little mouse and removed it from the cage. And that's true with us and God, too. The solution to our dead hearts has to come from outside. Because no matter how feverishly we work to to cover up our old hearts or to make believe that they're not there, the snake is still eventually going to wake up and bite us. And bite other people too. 
We need someone on the outside to save us from the snake within. We need the old heart taken away completely. We need a new heart given to us. And that's something only God can do, yet it's something God delights to do for us. So question as we close. Are you seeking a relationship with God? Do you want to experience God's salvation? Are you experiencing it? It's not enough to just come back into God's presence, to be here among God's people, to enjoy God's provision and protection, as wonderful as all that is. And it's not even enough to be cleansed by Jesus' blood, to be forgiven and to be washed clean from all the times you've messed up, as wonderful and necessary as that is. As great as those blessings of salvation are, we need more and God wants to give us more. We also need and we especially need a new heart. We need God to take our dead heart, which doesn't really love God and doesn't really want to do or be all that God wants us to do and be. And we need God to take that old heart out and to give us a new one, a transformed one. And if you've never asked God to do that for you, um, you can ask that now as we pray. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your incredible commitment to your name and to your plan to save the world and to save us because you do love us. Your heart breaks because of us. We thank you so much for inviting us back to your presence, back into the place of your provision and your protection. We thank you so much for cleaning us up, for forgiving our sins, for washing away our guilt so that we can actually come back into your presence. And we thank you so much that you want to offer us new hearts to be able to live differently and to love you. And so, God, I pray for and with those who don't have new hearts yet, who have maybe never asked you to do that for them. God, if they're asking for that right now, would you give them new hearts? Would your spirit come close? Would you breathe into the center of who they are, their minds, their hearts, their emotions, their wills, the center of their being? And would you cause what's dead to come alive again, to give them a, new loves, new desires, new perspectives, new ways of thinking and living and choosing? Thank you that you gladly do that. And that changes everything. And God, for those of us who have experienced that, but maybe we've forgotten Maybe we've grown cold. Maybe we haven't been listening to our hearts, but we have been listening to other motives and influences both inside of us and outside of us. Would you remind us again to live and to love out of that new heart? By your spirit, stir that up within us. In Jesus' name, amen.